0: And now, here's your host, Sean Rost.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Rost, and I'll be your guys to explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from Our Missouri. Today's episode marks the end of Season 2 of Our Missouri, and all of us here appreciate your continued support of the podcast. To wrap up Season 2, we are joined by Sarah lyrely McKeon, an assistant professor of history at Columbia College, to discuss her soon-to-be-released book tentatively titled An Arc of Death. Welcome to the Armisbury podcast, Sarah.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Now, tell us a little about the origins of your book project and how it really came together um, in a completed form.
2: Well, I've actually been working on this book since I began graduate school. This really originated with my master's thesis, which I started in late 2010, early 2011. I wanted to study domesticity in the 19th century, and my um, advisor, Leanne White, said, you know, there's these coroner's inquests and people haven't really used them. Maybe you could look at those and, and learn something about domesticity. And so I started looking at the coroner's inquests and there were thousands of inquests and I ended up narrowing it down. There were so many inquests, so many causes of death, so many people. So I ended up focusing my master's thesis on women who died by suicide. And I really shifted away from this domesticity idea, even though there are a lot of details about family life. And then I defended my thesis, I got my master's degree and I said, there is so much more I can learn from this source. So for my dissertation, um, I wanted to go deeper and I wanted to look a little bit differently. And so what I did was, um, I I worked with a sociologist who helped me with random sampling. And I did a random sample just to see what I could learn from the source. And I ended up looking at six different causes of death. So um, I started with a random sample that yielded like 868 cases. I narrowed it down to 120, um, narrowed it down to six causes of death. And i was still thinking, I'm gonna study the family, I'm gonna study the family. And then at my dissertation defense, or not my dissertation defense, my proposal defense, dissertation proposal defense, my committee said, you know, this kind of feels like a study of death. And so I, I went with that. Um, and so I look at men and women um, ages, ages 20 to 50, and I look at six different causes of death. So I've got deaths um, or really verdicts, because the verdict is not necessarily the cause of death. It often is suicide, um, deaths from alcohol and drug use, deaths from abortion, homicide, accidents and the natural deaths.
1: That's really fascinating. And you mentioned those, those coroner's inquests and kind of their importance in your research. How did you get to them? Where did you find them at? And kind of what sources and archives did you visit um, as you were working on the project?
2: The coroner's inquests are on microfilm at the Missouri State Archives in Jefferson City. And so that's where I accessed the coroner's inquests. Um, and so I did a lot of my research there. I also went to the Missouri State Archives in St. Louis. I was very fortunate. I received a William E. Foley fellowship for my dissertation research. And I looked at court records at the Missouri State Archives in St. Louis and some other sources. And then I did research um, at the State Historical Society as well. I did a lot of newspaper research. Um, there was one of my cases, there's a, a paper collection related to it. So. Um, Uh, I looked at the paper collection, um, other primary sources such as mayor's messages and city directories. So I was very fortunate. A lot of local areas helped me, and I got help from a lot of archivists at all of these different places. They helped me find a lot of good information.
1: Now, with coroner's inquest, obviously there is a coroner that is involved in, in that. So, in looking at 19th century St. Louis, you know, what was the job of a coroner? Was this a position that was Based upon their medical experience? Was it politically affiliated? You know, what are the backgrounds of these coroners that you're looking at in terms of their not only how they got the job, but also what they're doing on a regular basis?
2: In Missouri, coroners were elected, um, and the state regulations only required that a coroner be a suitable, and I'm putting scare quotes around suitable, because, you know, who, what does that mean? State resident and a U.S. citizen. However, in St. Louis, at least during the, the time period I'm looking at, which is the late 19th century, coroners were licensed practicing physicians. Um, some held private medical practices and some taught at local medical schools when they did not hold the office of coroner. And they were elected to their positions. They were affiliated uh, with political offices. So some were Republicans, some were Democrats, but they, were, they had far more training and expertise than the state requirements. A coroner was assisted by a deputy coroner um, that he appointed, and he did not necessarily have medical training. There are a couple of deputy coroners that were attorneys, so they had some legal training. And I believe I found one in my ten-year period. I look at 1875 to 1885. I found one deputy coroner with who was a physician, but they didn't have to necessarily have that training. And so the coroner was in charge of the office of the coroner. And sometimes he would investigate um, deaths himself, often, you know, more complicated cases like a homicide. Sometimes the deputy coroners would just go and investigate by themselves. So they were elected officials. They held their positions for, you know, two to four years. Some, I think I have one coroner who was elected four times. They often held other political positions as well, uh, such as health commissioner, um, one was assistant circuit attorney, superintendent of the morgue or even serving on the school board so their job was to investigate any suspicious death right so if you think perhaps there was foul play um or if there's an accident maybe at a workplace and perhaps you need to investigate and see if if the company is liable um and they also investigated deaths where for for instance um, somebody who you know drops out of a heart attack at age 40 and no physician is present, they would go investigate that as well, or the deputy coroner would. So it was political. They were elected, but they had a lot of training and expertise in their field.
1: Now, with coroners from kind of, as you point out, different backgrounds, um, you're going to have really different interpretations, perhaps of how someone met their death. Um, so how did race, class, and even gender Influence the coroner's interpretation of a case that they are presented with investigating?
2: So each coroner was different in terms of age, politics, personal experiences, but they were all highly educated, middle-class, able-bodied white men. Um, Some served in the Civil War, the Medical Corps, some for the Union, some for the Confederacy, which kind of gives you an idea of some of their their politics. Um, And they lived in a society in which white men had the most social and political power, and they operated within this, this gender system with this idea that men were supposed to be breadwinners and women were supposed to be mothers and moral guardians of the home. Although, of course, in reality, plenty of working class women worked for wages and ran their households. Plenty of African-American women also did the same thing. So in part because of their assumptions, but also there's a lot of factors that that influence their investigations, including you know the number of witnesses they can talk to, family members. But in part of that, um, Part of their assumptions you see they're more likely to investigate the deaths of respected white men and women more thoroughly than those of those who they thought were disreputable so for example women who worked as prostitutes did not get very long investigations um, men and women who had a reputation for drinking regularly often did not abusive men these sorts of things or people who lived in what were considered to be rough neighborhoods so the length of the inquest was not necessarily about the complexity of the case. If you have a really prominent person, a coroner might go out of their way to interview more witnesses than they really needed to to figure out how and why this person died. And you can see this they on the on the inquests, they note the rates, race and ethnicity for every deceased person um, and sometimes for the witnesses. And you really see this with African Americans. So if they're investigating the death of an African American, they write colored next to their name or col And they don't just do this. There's a a place on the corners inquest where they write race or ethnicity, right? So they'd say, you know, Irish or born in Bavaria or whatever. But when you look at the witnesses, if they're talking to somebody who's African American, they always note, they always note that. And so there it's 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 kind of saying that they're assuming that the readers are going to be white and if you're not white, then they they feel the need to note that. So you also see some of the assumptions, like I said, in how many witnesses they interviewed, how much information they recorded during the interviews and in their verdicts. Um, So for example, there's a heat wave and coroners are overwhelmed with deaths to investigate. But even though they have all sorts of um, deaths to investigate, they have all sorts of inquests to wrap up, they still take the time to note that some people just died from heat stroke, whereas others died from heatstroke and intemperance, or sometimes they would write heat and liquor. So why not simply just decide that all of these people died from heatstroke? Why make that distinction? And when I, I especially found this when I was working on my master's thesis, because I was just looking at women and I was just looking at suicide, but I found that some of the short investigations were into the deaths of women who were as prostitutes. And even in cases where there could have been an accidental death, like a drug overdose, the coroners quickly decided that they died by suicide, and they closed the case. But it wasn't just um, about these people themselves. And, and you know some coroners often conducted long investigations. That's just kind of how they did it. And some kind of often offered shorter, conducted shorter investigations. Family testimony also mattered. And so they might decide that a man or woman died by suicide, for instance, or alcoholism while suffering from insanity if, if they had relatives to talk to. So it's the social location kind of of the coroner matters, um, the social location of the deceased matters, but reputation often matters because for instance, there's um, a man who, who's it featured in one of my chapters, he abused his wife, um, he was a heavy drinker, and even though his wife gives some evidence in her testimony to the coroner that he perhaps suffered from what they called insanity at the time, the coroner doesn't decide he died from insanity. And so you kind of see those assumptions there as well.
1: Now, kind of in looking at what kind of the coroner is obviously investigating uh, causes of death, and you mentioned a little bit about the different fatalities that you're you're examining overall throughout the project. Um, But could you tell us a little bit about how you decided to focus on not only, we could say, typical forms of death, but also atypical? You know, what are some of the notable cases that you're examining um, over the course of the project?
2: I really wanted to learn more about violent deaths when I started off. And so that's kind of why I narrowed it between the ages of um, 20 and 50. And I tried to get, you know, a range of, you know, different races, different ethnicities, um, men and women. So I I decided to focus on those six types of verdicts. Um, Just, well, for one thing, I wanted to kind of contrast these violent deaths with natural causes just to see. You know what was, for instance, a a more typical investigation. Um, but I really wanted to learn about kind of the violence going on and the in the family relationships going on. And that's how I that's how I made these choices. And I ended up finding a lot of useful information in these cases. Um, a lot of information about domestic violence, for instance, or or family violence. And so that's how I ended up choosing. Those, those types of cases. And then, I, like I said, I kind of wanted to, you know, contrast it with natural death and also accidents to a certain extent. So I was, re- the choice comes from seeing what the source can tell me, um, but also kind of looking for those, those, fam- those violent family relationships. And I didn't look for kind of famous cases or, or atypical cases, but I, I found some. So some of the more interesting cases that jumped out. For one thing, I didn't find a whole lot of prominent people. I did find one. I found um, the case as the suicide of the wife of the former Lieutenant Governor of Missouri, and I was not expecting that at all. And that per, um, her husband has a paper collection at the State Historical Society, so I was able to kind of piece together what that family was like before and after she died. Um, and her case is atypical because well a she's incredibly prominent, and those, those cases just don't show up very often. and also she received a long a lengthy investigation, fairly lengthy. They interviewed six witnesses, which they didn't often do and it's also just it's just a kind of a, a very sad case. Um, She received a verdict of suicide, but it wasn't a typical suicide verdict because the coroner decided that she was suffering from temporary insanity. And so this is something I look at in my chapter about suicide is why do coroners decide some people are insane and some people are not. So she gave birth to a baby girl prematurely. She seemed convinced that her baby would not live. And um, sadly, she was right. The baby only lived about two weeks And Estelle obviously was suffering from grief after her baby died, and perhaps what we would today call postpartum depression. So her family was well off. They had servants, they had relatives, and they watched her 24-7. And her husband, um, Charles Johnson, the former lieutenant governor and a prominent attorney, he did everything he could to try to help his wife. He kept an eye on her. He traveled with her to try to cheer her up. Um, but she attempted suicide several times and then she managed to hide arsenic in her dress and then she slipped it in her tea uh, when her family was not looking. So what's really interesting is a lot of times when somebody died by suicide, the press, they write these sensationalistic articles, right? Sometimes they're very sympathetic. Sometimes they are not. They're incredibly judgmental. But because of her family's prominence in the, in the city, there weren't a lot of articles. They were really short um but they were very sympathetic and as i said i was able to look you know look through her husband i was able to look through her husband's diary which i have never been able to do for any other case he never got over his wife's death i mean he would mark the anniversaries of it um and he remarried twice but he never got over over her death and so there are a couple of cases like that that stand out that i just happened to find um that are you know long inquests or or they're you know, Prominent people found a couple of murder suicides, which were really interesting. Um, one case that didn't make it into the book was that of a man who they called Desperado Randy, who shot and killed a police officer. So that was a that was a homicide that got a lot of attention. and he kind of painted himself as this Robin Hood type character uh, who robbed from the rich and gave to the poor. Um, he was He ended up being convicted of of murder. But what's interesting about his case is, you know, I guess it's kind of similar to today. It's, it's a notorious case, and the press is, you know, Desperado Randy, this, he did this and he did that. And it's like, oh, yes, and here's his, his victim, Officer White. Um, and there's so much more tension on this, this Frank Randy than there is on his victim.
1: i looking over the project as a whole, and then kind of as you were doing this over several years, you know, you're looking at not only the coroners, but also the lives of those who are connected to these cases and, you know, those who who passed away from the various incidents. What is something that you found that really stood out to you or was something that you weren't expecting um, as you went along with the project?
2: I was really surprised that the testimony of family members was so important to these investigations because these coroners are highly trained. They're practicing physicians, but they really rely on the testimony of relatives and other witnesses, right? Especially if there's a literal witness, right? Somebody sees an accident occur or somebody here's a gunshot. But they learned about alcoholism, um, drug use, and mental illness from relatives. And so they're medical experts, but they are relying on family members to help make these determinations. So for example, when the coroner comes in and examines Estelle Johnson's case, it's her relatives who are telling him, I'm sure this was, you know, just a temporary mental aberration. This is not like her. Um, or other cases, it's like, you know, this person, they haven't been themselves lately, I think, you know, and they would use terms like they were melancholy, they had the blues, sometimes they would say insane, um, and and the coroners pick up on that, and that's how they help make their determinations. They're not talking necessarily to, pra- like, the treating physicians, right? It's not like Coroner Aller is talking to Estelle, jo- he is talking to her physicians, right? But that's not the only thing that's helping make this determination and even in cases where there aren't treating physicians sometimes coroners decide okay this person was they they died by suicide because of one one case ill treatment by her husband um her husband was beating her that's why she died by suicide right because she was a mother um and she was a a poor woman and an an immigrant but she was a mother and so the coroner thinks wow um she she must have you know it's clearly her husband's abuse that drove her to this i found that surprising i also find it to um expected to find more middle and upper class men and women in the inquests but overwhelmingly i found poor and working class men and women in the inquests which is something that other historians have found and i have an argument about why that is but you'll have to read the book to find out and finally i was surprised that coroners investigated deaths from natural causes so quickly they paid more attention to unexpected violent deaths than they did when somebody died from an illness or an attending physician. And sometimes their, their verdicts don't necessarily match what the witnesses say. Um, so there's like this, there's this one case where this man died and the wife said, well, he had you know, severe stomach pains, and, but they determined it was a different cause. Um, and I have an argument about that as well, about why that is. I think it's nobody's going to be held responsible, right? If somebody dies from a heart attack or convulsions. Nobody's going to be charged with a crime. They're not going to have to worry about burial rights, and I think that's why they kind of don't investigate them um, as thoroughly as they did other cases, but it still surprised me.
1: Now, as people and readers really engage with this work and really look through it and kind of see what you found in your project, what do you hope that they take away from the book after reading
2: it? really hope that they realize that coroner's inquests are a really valuable historical source. A lot of times people don't use them because they're incomplete data sets, so they're kind of sporadic. So for St. Louis, there are inquests from 1840 to 1900, but really you don't get long detailed cases until about the 1870s, so I have a narrow time period that I'm looking at. However, if you're a social historian like myself who's interested in things like race, class, and gender, coroner's inquests are a really valuable source. Um, If you wanna study the poor and working class, you wanna study women, immigrants, African-Americans or any other marginalized groups, they're not gonna leave behind letter collections or diaries, like I am so grateful that I found one diary related to one case in my study, like that never happens. They're not gonna be featured in city or county histories, but they're present in these coroner's inquests. They're present in the testimony. Um, there's all these witnesses who talk about the death of a friend, neighbor, relative. Coroners go to so-called rough neighborhoods. Sometimes they go to city bars or brothels. They talk to people with drug and alcohol addictions, women who worked as prostitutes, residents of boarding houses, domestic servants, roustabouts on riverboats. The words of these ordinary people are preserved in these inquests. And there's a small, tiny piece of their stories in this inquest. And that's a good starting point. I used Ancestry.com to kind of research census records, other records, um, to learn more about these people and kind of, and kind of learn more about their, their story other than, you know, that the moments, days, weeks before they die. I also hope that people have a better understanding of the complexity of death investigations. Um, St. Louis coroners were highly trained, but they were also human beings. They worked in a complex political, legal, and medical system. And a coroner's verdict is not necessarily the result of an objective investigation. It's based on the information that the coroner looked for, the information that they were able to receive, and then how they interpreted it. And then finally, I hope that people have a better understanding of the way in which coroners contributed and still contribute to the justice system. Coroners determined if a person died by homicide or criminal negligence, and that could be the first step towards um, a criminal trial. I have one case that's also from my master's thesis that I hope to turn into an article or a book some, someday. The coroner, you can, you re, he had a jury inquest. And so he's, the jury makes the decision about whether or not this woman died from homicide or suicide. And you, it's a very long inquest and you can see the coroner's questions. And it's evident to me that the coroner really thought that she was murdered, that she, he really thought her husband killed her, but the jury ends end up deciding that she died by suicide. Well, if the jury had made a different decision, there could have been a criminal case. Um, her husband may have gone to trial, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this is, this is part of the justice system.
1: Well, it certainly is a fascinating project, and I look forward to uh, reading it in the future. And thank you very much for joining us today, Sarah. Thank
2: you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the R Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, Including past and future episodes, information about guests, and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our Missouri.